Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. What we're going to do right now is drive forward to the Friday jobs report, and there's no one better to do that with than Louis Alexander. He is with Nomura and has an esteemed career in academics out of Yale, out of Stanford, and also in market economics. Lou, I know John and Lisa want to get to what we'll see Friday, but I've got to give you a victory lap on an essay you wrote, I'm going to guess, a decade ago, maybe coming out of your public service under Secretary Geithner, where you talked about technology of the haves and the have-nots. You absolutely nailed it then, Dr. Alexander. And now we've got the likes of Amazon borrowing at full faith in credit yields. Can technology, do you just visualize these technology giants just advancing over the coming years and decades to ever bigger, ever more dominant? So I think one of the questions of the economy over the last 10 years has really been why hasn't productivity growth been stronger? given how important and how pervasive tech has been. Look, we're going through a real-time experiment of what we can really do uh, with technology, and I think we're going to be positively surprised. So in many ways, I do think this is an opportunity for that. Um, I think the question really is, is the right industrial structure for that a small number of very large firms, or do you want to see more competition? And that, frankly, is going to be the policy debate around tech Uh, going forward. We're trying to understand, Lou, how these companies right-size themselves in the months to come, the amount of debt that many of these companies have had to borrow. What do you expect corporate behavior to look like in the next several months, and how will it shape growth? So, look, I I think it makes all the sense in the world for corporations to shore up their liquidity at this point, and capital markets are open. Uh, Credit markets are open for good borrowers, and so I think it makes perfect sense for them to take advantage of that. Obviously, you're going to have Uh, some companies that are going to face losses over the near term that are very large relative to their existing equity base. You think about the, uh, the auto rental companies, the airlines. They are facing fundamental challenges, and that's going to be a different kettle of fish. But for most corporations who are going to be able to ride ride this out, um, it makes all the sense in the world for them to be borrowing. Lou, as you said, that this market is open for good borrowers and the bifurcation has never been more, uh, never been greater, whether it's the good corporate borrower or a good consumer borrower. And we're seeing that bleed out in the economic numbers with the jobless reports on Thursday, as well as Friday that we're expecting this week. Can the U.S. economy maintain some sort of growth trajectory with that divergence intact? So, like, one of the things which is different about this shock from others is how concentrated it is by sector. So those parts of the economy that depend on social contact, the most obvious ones being restaurants and entertainment and all of that, are being devastated by this. Other parts of the economy that are frankly much less dependent on that and can adapt to working from home and all of those things are are obviously doing much better. And it's very unusual to have a shock like this that has that disparity. So it really starts with that. I think as we come out of this, as we back away from the most extreme version of social distancing, as we learn how to do these things without generating the same kind of exposure, I think you will see those disparities start to diminish. But they're going to be with us for a long time. 
So I think the real problem is the jobs available for people who have done that stuff that depends on social distancing. They're going to be depressed for a while. So uh, the U.S. Budget Office came out with a projection saying that it may take nearly a decade for the U.S. economy to recover from the shock that we just saw. What does that mean in terms of the unemployment rate going forward on a sort of sustainable basis over the next five, say, years? So, look, I think the experience we had before COVID-19, which suggested that we could get the unemployment rate down to very low levels without having those sorts of problems of inflation we've had in the past, I think that is relevant experience for what we're going to, where we should try and get to in the long run. But look, we haven't seen unemployment at these levels since the Great Depression. The, when the, we had the Great Recession a decade ago, the unemployment rate got to 10%, and it took us eight or nine years to get it down below 4%. It's over 15 now. It's going higher before this is over. Yes, it is going to take a long time for us to get back. I'm, I'm not sure it's necessarily going to take as long as it did following the last big recession, uh, but it's going to take a long time. This is the issue, Tom, the number one issue. And Lisa raises exactly the right question on unemployment. Tom, you and I have been talking about this together with Lisa over the last several months or so. We could approach 20%. We could have some real improvement in the back half of this year, but we could still end the year at double figures. And that's going to be unacceptable and should be unacceptable to absolutely everybody, Tom. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And, and Dr. Alexander, what's so important about that observation is what it does to inequality. Now, we don't need to go on a Tuesday into the Gini coefficient and all the dynamics of inequality, but has it ever been wider? Um, you have to go back a long time for it's been worse. We've never had a shock that is more disparate. One of the things I will just note to bring it back to the employment report we're going to get on Friday um, we're expecting average hourly earnings to go up by 1.3 percentage points on a month when we lose over 5 million jobs. Now, how do you make sense of that? The way you make sense of that is the jobs we're losing are low-wage jobs. And it, that, dis, that disparity between what happens with average hourly earnings and the headline employment is a direct reflection of the inequality of the effects of this. And I do think that that is an aspect of this, which we can't get away from, and it's going to affect the politics of this. In some ways, these are trends that have been out there for a long time. They're not really new, uh, but it is very much going to sort of highlight those problems. And I think it's going to be an important part of the election. What is the social policy that begins to nudge us away from this abrupt inequality? I mean, the tradition of Yale academics is Robert Schiller and James Tobin and, and others where there was an advocacy for a social policy. This is America that's not doing so well on social policy right now. What's the best case to begin to take us from our inequalities? Um, I think you have to try and address um, the underlying causes and start from the beginning. And a lot of that is about education. It's about access to um, social services. So one of the things that's very striking about this is the incidence of mortality around COVID-19 is related to other conditions, which are related to economic status and your access to health care. So I think there's some very basic things you can do, um, starting with health care, but also ultimately coming back to education and giving people the skills not only to have higher wage jobs, but to have jobs, frankly, that can be done 
uh, remotely. So one of the big disparities, again, is who gets, who has the jobs that we can do uh, work from home. Uh, that is, in some sense, uh, very much related to those same inequalities in education that are the things we have to start to address. Lou Alexander from Namora. Lou, always great to get your thoughts on this program. Thank you for your time this morning. Great to have Lou Alexander with us moments ago with uh, Namura. And John, the backdrop of this, as you beautifully stated, is an equity market that's got a very much real risk on feel. John, do we have a why for that? I don't have a why. The Federal Reserve, sequential improvement as we reopen, <laughs> Tom. There are many reasons, I think. There are many whys, but I don't really have a why in a moment like this on why we should yeah. be higher. Equity yeah. futures up 13 points, up <clears throat> four tenths of 1%. Let's talk about that equity market, Tom Keane. We can bring in the chief US equity strategist of Goldman Sachs, a good friend of this show, I'm pleased to say. David Coston is with us now. David, you've called this one unloved. I'd call it hated. This move from the bottom all the way up and through this morning. What's your take at the moment? Uh, well, it's interesting, the definition between unloved and uh, hated. I guess the indifference, what Dante said, is the, really the, uh, the, the opposite of, uh, of unloved. But the idea of portfolio managers, they certainly welcome the idea of a higher market. Most fund managers are long biased, long tilted, whether they're a long only fund, mutual fund, or whether they're a hedge fund, they tend to have a long bias. So the rising market has certainly been, uh, been, uh, been welcome. And it's, uh, it's been unloved. Uh, you could argue your, your terms hated because most fund managers haven't been positioned uh, to participate in fully in this, uh, in this uh, recovery. I will certainly say as a strategist, uh, been surprised at the magnitude and the persistence of the 35% move in the, uh, in the S&P 500. Of course, uh, as uh, you've talked about, no doubt, and, and, and others, the rally has been so driven by a relatively narrow group of stocks, primarily in technology, that has helped lift the indexes, but the uh, the underlying typical stock actually hasn't necessarily participated as much as the headline index would uh, would would show, and so that's a an issue that has been of much discussion with uh, with with uh, with clients and portfolio managers now. Because does one continue to own the leaders of the market, the top five concentration uh, stocks? Never been this concentrated in, in history, even back in the tech bubble of two thousand. Uh, the top five stocks then were like 18%. Now we're talking at 20%. One-fifth of the market is dominated, <clears throat> controlled, or represented by, uh, by just five companies. So the, uh, we know the drivers diagnostically. And then looking forward, the, uh, the idea of uh, the cyclical recovery, which has certainly been, uh, been, been a focus in the last couple of weeks, uh, in the last couple of days, frankly. But the Persistence of that, I would say, is, is I'm less confident about that. We, we focus more strategically on some of the market leaders and whether that's in technology, whether there's more secular growth and uh, stronger balance sheets. Some of those characteristics, uh, in my view, are yeah. more sustainable in terms of their drivers. Well, David, let's talk about that. It's important. The reopening rotation has taken place over the last couple of weeks. What is it about that rotation that you don't think is durable? What is it about it that you don't think is sustainable? So the key issue is the uh, rehiring rates in the United States. The idea is, you know, tragically, we have almost 40 million people filed for unemployment, initial unemployment, over the last nine weeks. And how quickly, hopefully it will be quickly, but how, how quickly and how many, what percentage of those individuals who have been laid off or furloughed will be rehired by their employers? 
basic assumption a lot of people have been making around 80 percent uh you know and that will drive the the economic activity and as people uh leave shelter in place or begin to reopen some of these state economies does that lead to more uh sustainability well you've had a big move already uh in a lot of these companies and i would uh answer the question as follows i prefer and recommend that you own domestically facing goods producers as contracted with services providers. So every company in the country is classified as either a goods producer or a services provider. And the lessons from China is that the leading edge of the recovery or the restart of the economy, Jonathan, right. is led by the Tom is led by the industrials, not the consumer. So we want to own U.S. companies that are that are more uh, business to business, you know, of uh, uh, the goods producing. Those would be right. a lot of companies in the te- in the chemical business, uh, you know, chemical space, some machinery, some aerospace. That would be your trade, if you will, your your tactical trade. But strategically, still looking for stronger balance sheets and technology uh, to be offering better returns over time. What's interesting here, David Costin, is small caps. Chris Verone over Strategus has a brilliant note this morning noticing the elevation of small caps, but he asks the Goldman Sachs-like question of do they on an absolute basis advance, and can they even advance on a relative basis versus large caps? Do you have an affinity for small caps right now? Um, I do not, and the reason for that is uh, strictly on the balance sheet. We know the singular risk in this uh, in this economic dislocation has been a collapse in revenues here in the second quarter, as most of the country, much of the country, was uh, was at home and just there wasn't a lot of activity, and therefore uh, liquidity and balancing strength were key. So the Fed obviously came in with many programs in terms of the uh, support in the commercial paper market or in the IG market, and in fact, in some of the fallen angels in the, in, the, in the high yield market. But still, the liquidity and solvency are critical issues in the uncertain path of recovery, and therefore would rather own companies with stronger balance sheets, which characteristically are larger companies as contrasted with smaller companies, which typically have more leverage and, uh, and just their less flexibility on the, on the, on the financing side. David, perhaps the theme of the year is growing disparity, whether it's in incomes, uh, low and high income households, whether it's the companies that are doing well in the stock market or not doing well. And then the latest from the U.S. Budget Department coming out and showing that the economy is not going to recover in the United States for nearly a decade from the shock that it's just experienced. How long can the U.S. equity market as a collective remain divorced from this underlying economic reality as put out there by the United States? Uh, as you said, it is the you know, critical question for both society and for the investor community about the, what appears to be clear dislocation between the path of what the economy is sort of going through and where the equity markets, which we know a couple of things. Number one, the equity market is a discounting mechanism, so it looks out into the future and brings this forward. So it is clearly anticipating a steady restart basically implying that there's not a, a lot of dislocation, whether that's through the you know, second viral wave, uh, various other, you know, just, it's going to basically be a steady renormalization of the, of the process. And that is the first you know, argument and why the equity market has been rising so much. But we have to understand as well that the stock market is not a pure reflection of the economy. It's definitely much more skewed towards stronger balance sheet companies, for example. Uh, it's 
skewed towards uh, businesses which are they have more in technology. It's much less in, uh, in the housing market than the rest of the economy. So there's, there's, they're not purely uh, you know, representative one or the other. But it ultimately, there is, uh, you know, you mentioned the word divorce between there has to be some linkage between the earnings of a company and the overall size of the, the economy. And the economy is basically driving revenues. And the expectation is business is getting is getting better. You didn't quite get that, frankly, in the commentary from corporate management in the first quarter conference calls. It just ended. They were generally more subdued, yeah. lots of concerns about the pace of restart. And so it would suggest to me. The S&P 500 at these levels is trading at a higher level than I have at the end of the year, right about, you know, roughly the same level, but 3,000 is a target at the end of the year. And if I think about the risks around this, you're looking at modest upside risk, maybe 5% opportunity, and 5% puts you at 3,200, and that's basically because positioning is light, neutral to light, and that's where it's been hovering. So investors have not been super embracing Using you, Jonathan, your terminology, it's sort of it's uh, you know a hated rally. They've not participated. On the other hand, you have the concerns about the pace of the restart, and can you get all these people back so you have a sustainable recovery? And yep. the market therefore puts down at like twenty-seven fifty would be ten percent. Is asymmetrical skew somewhat to the downside mm. uh, from the risk point of view? David, I'm happy to wrap up an interview when you borrow a phrase of mine. I'm always happy to lend that to you, David Costin of Goldman Sachs, the chief U.S. equity strategist. David, I hope the family's doing well. We appreciate your time this morning. We usually speak on international relations with Ian Bremmer, but today we speak with Dr. Bremmer of Eurasia Group about the international and domestic relations of a better America. All of us are in search of that, and we need to fight our way through in the coming nights and days to find that better America. Dr. Bremer, you were out on the streets of Manhattan last night as we were before the curfew. It is the challenges of a New York. What is your reading of history of how we somehow get beyond looting? Well, you know, we know that looting doesn't define uh, the protest movements uh, and and nor the depth uh, of the level of disaffection that exists uh, in the United States right now. Uh, This didn't start with Trump. Uh, It's the reason we got Trump, indeed, uh, is because so many Americans feel like they don't have the opportunity, uh, that the American dream does not apply to them. Uh, Those lessons were not learned after 2008, 2009. They weren't learned with the Occupy Wall Street movement. Now they've come back. Uh, in much more dramatic form, in part because inequality is worse, in part because Mm -hmm. you have 25% unemployment and 40 million newly unemployed with their slips over the past two months, and in part because the least privileged and most particularly African Americans in the United States have suffered the most dramatically on the back of this horrible coronavirus. So, you know, these things are cyclical. Um, And the geopolitics and the economic cycles right now, unfortunately, are lining up in a very negative way. And it's going to take us a long time to dig out of this, Tom. Dr. Bremer, give our international audience and particularly our younger viewers and listeners a primer on what Max Boot alluded to in The Washington Post yesterday, which is the similarities of the president's tack to George Wallace of another time and place. How narrow is the president's perspective, or does he speak to a much, much greater part of America than Governor Wallace of Alabama ever did? Look, I I do think that Trump speaks to a large 
percentage of disaffected Americans. What's amazing, uh, I just mentioned, you know, 25% unemployment, 6 to 8% contraction expected in the economy this year. And yet Trump's approval ratings blended at about 42% average polls, exactly where he was when unemployment was at record lows uh, and when we were expecting moderate growth in the United States. That, that tells you something about how much support Trump has, how strong it is, and also how fundamentally divided the country is. So if you look at Trump and his electoral game plan for November, he doesn't think that he's trying to win over black votes. I mean, he'd like them not to vote uh, because it gives them a better shot. But Biden's got that locked up. You know, he, he's not trying to pick up, you know, voters in California or here in New York City. He's going to lose the popular vote probably by several million, but he could still win again. And the way he wins again um, is by ensuring that his base, which is narrower than Biden's, but much more enthusiastic, feels like coming out to the polls. And that on the coronavirus side means don't worry about the virus. Don't wear a mask if you don't feel like it. Try hydroxychloroquine. Maybe it'll work. Get back to work. It's normal. While on the blue side of the equation, it's fear, lockdown, panic, and maybe they won't vote as much. If you add that to proximate danger of national security, domestic tranquility, the National Guard, the military on the streets, maybe they can make voting more challenging in person in places that he really doesn't want uh, to see turnout. And that's what the fight is going to be about in November. You'll remember, Tom, when you were at Eurasia Group at the beginning of the year, for the first time since I started the firm in 1998, the single top risk was a domestic U.S. concern. It's never been true. You're yes. right. We, you and I usually talk about the rest of the world because the political risk environment usually comes from the rest of the world. But this year, it's actually the feeling that the system is so badly rigged against disenfranchised right. white working <clears throat> middle class, against African-Americans facing well, systemic police abuse. And that that is a real concern. Right. Dr. Bremer, let me bring in my colleague, John Farrell. Hey, John. Well, thanks for that, Tom. I appreciate that. Ian and I have spoken many times. Ian, let's build on some of that. Whether we are at an inflection point. Do you believe we are at an inflection point or will we look back at this moment with disappointment that this was just another moment in time? I, I don't think that we are um, on the brink of civil war the way some in the mainstream media were actually saying yesterday. And I don't believe that we're about to become an authoritarian state. The United States is not Hungary. Separation and balance of powers are much stronger. The deep bureaucracy is much stronger. But um, I, I do think that the level of political dysfunction in the United States um, is far deeper than at any point in my lifetime. I was born in 69. 68, clearly in terms of social dissent, was nearly as bad. Um, but now you also have the United States entering into an economic depression and you have a pandemic that we're still fighting through. And indeed, all of these people out on the streets, many of whom are wearing masks, many of whom are not, not engaging in social distancing here in New York, a lot fewer cases, a lot of other places where we're seeing these demonstrations still actually have an R of over 1.0. In other words, 
the pandemic is still expanding, not under control. Um, that That's unique. Yeah. And as I said, I, I don't think this is the beginning of the end for the United States domestically. In fact, in many ways, we're going to come out of this crisis stronger than our allies uh, because we've got the robust tech companies, because we export food and energy. You can't forget about that. But our ability to lead the world with soft power, to lead by example, which has been eroding steadily now for decades, certainly post the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91, that is at the lowest point today of our lifetimes. And that will have true longstanding and structural effect on what the world looks like and the ability of the Americans to shape it. Yeah. And just sort of tying this together and quickly here, how vulnerable is the U.S., given all the distractions domestically, to some sort of international infiltration, be it a cyber attack or disinformation that could affect the election uh, and, and disrupt the social unrest even more? I mean, of course, it doesn't help. And at the margins, I think the Russians and perhaps the Iranians and Chinese will still be engaging in more propaganda, fake news. Uh, you know, you remember Black Lives Matter in 2016, the largest Facebook site was actually a Russian site. But to be very clear, the damage that is being done here is being done by ourselves. We're the ones that are so divided. We're the ones that are easier to take advantage of internationally precisely because we don't have our own house in order. When the Russians tried the same act with the German elections, they got nowhere. And that's because the country was much less divided. Ian, always great to get your thoughts and perspective on this program. Thanks for joining us this morning. I hope you and yours are doing well. Ian Bremer there of the Eurasia Group. There is the photograph at the failure of Lehman Brothers. And as the camera looks through the windows, there on the computer screen of gentlemen seeing their careers disappear is the Gartman uh, letter. It is seven, eight, nine, ten pages. And yes, we can talk about gold with Dennis Gartman, but maybe we should talk about the politics of the moment that make up so much of his letter, particularly in the back third as well. Mr. Gartman comes to us 20 miles from where it's supposed to be no protests. It's not the big city. And yet, Dennis, in your neck of the Virginia woods, there is protest, isn't there? Yes, it's happened in Virginia Beach. It's happened in Richmond. There have been marches in Norfolk. There have been marches in Hampton. Portsmouth, where I live, has not had anything, or where I live very near, has not had anything thus far. And Suffolk, where I actually do live, has had just a very peaceful march. But uh, all around us, my, my daughter's in the news business in Raleigh, and Raleigh has been on fire for the past couple days. It's just, it, this is very frightening, very disconcerting. And I think it plays into the hands of the Chinese. I think it plays into the hands of the Russians. The Chinese are going to look at this and say, look, if the United States of America calls in troops uh, to, to quell the violence, why can't we do the same thing in Taiwan? Why can't we do the same thing right. in, Hong, in Hong Kong? And I think that's something that people have to start paying attention to. Dennis, anyone that knows your work knows that you have a cast of Abraham Lincoln and the Elephant Party. Great. But you were one of the first and harshest critics of this president. How does the Republican yeah. Party regroup with a one-term Trump or even with a two-term Trump? It's a very serious question, isn't it? And with the poll numbers coming out in the past couple of days show a very marked decline for the popularity of the president and the possibility of a Democratic president and, and even worse, a Democratic Senate. How they're going to resolve this is beyond me, to be quite honest. Thank goodness I don't have to make that decision. But uh, it does appear that we have a president who's going to call in the troops and take a very substantive law and order perspective. 
that's going to have some support amongst his 33 percent uh, holdouts that are just absolutely Trumpistas from the from the start. We'll see how that prevails with the other 67 percent of the population. But uh, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to be the one to make the decision. You would think that given the fact that the prospect of military troops entering America's cities might be somewhat concerning to equity investors, the tail risks are increasing and being added to each day. And yet we are seeing equity futures higher. And this has been a consistent theme. And a lot of people point to Federal Reserve action, in particular, the yeah. also the increase uh, of the fiscal deficit. How does this play out in markets? In other words, can Fed and fiscal stimulus basically offset all of the rising tail risks and make you bullish on certain risk assets? It makes me, the only place that I can actually be in at bullish even modestly is the fact that I do think the yield curve is going to become more positively sloped. The back end of the curve rates are going to go higher. The short end of the curve rates are going to go lower. And that's going to be beneficial to the banking industry. But otherwise, other than that, I'm hard-pressed to come up with a bullish, uh, a, a bullish rationale. As uh, Lord Keynes once said, though, the market can remain irrational far longer than you or I can remain solvent. And the fact that the stock market has been predicated upon a bull run, predicated solely upon, as far as I can see, monetary expansionary policies by the Federal Reserve Bank and by other, federal, uh, by other reserve banks around the world, I guess we're not supposed to fade the Fed, but I do find it difficult being bullish. I'm, I'm, I applaud those who've, done a, who've gotten yeah. bullish. They have been profited, but I, I find no sense in them whatsoever. Dennis, to your point, we are seeing the U.S. yield curve widen quite substantially, the gap between 30-year yeah. and five-year Treasury yields now at the widest since 2017. What is this pricing in? Does this indicate some sort of inflation longer term? I think it does, Lisa. I think that's exactly what the market is beginning to understand, that Thus far, the monetary expansionary policies that have ex been extant around the, the G7, G8, G9, G12, whatever you want to call it, have not been inflationary, but the, eventually they shall be, and I think that's what's going to happen. The grain market doesn't make new lows. It starts to hold, hold its own. Gold in U.S. dollar terms has, become, has, has been very strong and likely to continue to be strong. We're starting to see inflationary pressures as far as labor is concerned. So I do think that that's what's happening, and I think that the yield curve gets demonstrably more positively sloped, as I said, uh, the back end of the curve, I think rates can go up past 2% without any difficulty. And I have to, it's hard for me to understand even how that we've been under 2% to begin with, because when I first started trading in the 1970s on the Board of Trade in Chicago, the long bond had a 14.25% coupon, and you couldn't give it away. But we're going to go back above 2 or 3 or 4% in the long bond. And at the, at the short end of the curve, overnight Fed funds are likely to remain close to zero. So the, so the yield curve gets demonstrably positively sloped. Dennis Garman, too many themes here to talk about. We never even got to gold. What we're going to do is get Mr. Garman back on, folks, in the coming days to speak to us about the shift in his gold call. He has been hugely successful with gold and yen and gold and euro, and he's made an important sea change there. And we're going to get him on. I promise you we're going to get him on in the coming days uh, with this news flow. Just too hard to get to that call today. Dennis Garman, thank you so much. Uh, of course, the legendary... Uh, Gartman letter. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>